I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As Well, Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should want. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, we are moving along through the two towers. We are now in book four. Yeah. And we started this time with chapter one, The Taming of Smeagol, and we went all the way to... Chapter 6, The Forbidden Pool. Okay, and we almost weren't able to record it this week because we had uh, almost screwed up one of our cords, but luckily we were able to bend it back into shape, and we are set to go. Thanks, babe. (laughs) Okay, let's go ahead and get into it. So we start off, um, this is a big jump back in time, and now we're with Sam and Frodo. Yeah, I always feel like I get really bad whiplash from this chapter because i need to reset my mind to be like oh this is like literally the day after the breaking of the fellowship and while boromir's funeral is kind of getting ready and they're going to hunt the orcs on the plains of rohan um frodo and sam are trying to scramble their way down the east side of the Emin wheel there's a lot of uh a lot of scrambling around rocks and rocky hills in the first half of this chapter. Yeah, and um, I'm glad to have you here because you'll probably be able to reference back to what the rest of the Fellowship is doing at this time. I personally, as a first-time reader, and even if this were my second time or third time reading, have not been keeping a mental track of that at all. Yeah, I don't know. There is one part in this section where they do reference like while Frodo and Sam were here mm-hmm. Gandalf was striving with the voice of Saruman right I don't remember when that was actually so I'm maybe not the best person <laughs> okay well um, maybe we won't even talk about that that much but for me this this whole chunk was all about character development um not too too much plot happening just a lot of people yeah and a lot of relationships a lot of character dynamics happening um the other chunk book three was very plot heavy it was like oh and here they're with the orcs and the riders rohan come and kill them and now they're going into fangorn and they rouse the ends take on isengard and everything leads to the next battle of Helm's deep the voice of saruman yeah it's all progressing into the next chapter these are just kind of like frodo and sam know they need to get to mordor they don't know how to get there they know they're being followed by Gollum. um Yeah, and then they meet him in this chapter. Yeah, so let's just kind of... I have no reason to talk about the rock scrambling. Do you have anything to talk about before they kind of... Other than I hate it. No, not really. (laughs) I am not a big fan of the first half of this chapter. I never enjoy it. Yeah, it was funny when when we were kind of discussing this set of chapters before recording... Uh, you mentioned this section, and I was like, I don't even remember that. Like, it, it to me, it just disappears. I feel like my eyes always, like, glaze over, and I'm just, like, reading the next page. It's like, okay, they're still trying to find a way down. And, yeah, it's just kind of a lot of Frodo and Sam going back and forth about, you know, like, rope and... Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's Yeah. I do think it's cool that, you know, we get to see the use of this elfin rope that uh they they got from yeah um Lothlorien and and I do think it's you know it was kind of almost a running joke throughout the first book Sam was just always being like I wish I packed rope um and he got rope and he was like oh finally yeah you're like and he forgets about it for a time and now um, he finally gets to use it and it's like oh cool we definitely get a sense in that first section that Sam uh is willing to do anything to protect Frodo like he he totally puts Frodo before himself in all cases oh yeah um kind of (laughs) to his potential demise 
Yeah, even like to the point where it's like kind of stupid. Yeah, and it just, is kind of yeah, stupid. Yeah, Frodo's like, what are you doing? I have a lot to say about like Sam's intellect later, but I think this is definitely an example where he's a little bit more simple. Yeah, yeah. He's always seeming a little simple on the surface, but as we know, there's always, there's layers to yeah, Sam. He's absolutely. like an onion. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think the name of this chapter really says it all. The Taming of Smeagol. Yeah, they really uh, uh, get to meet face to face this creature from bilbo's old stories that they've grown up hearing about um and now he's been dogging them they've been seeing his eyes but now they really get to see him face to face it makes me think a lot about going back to the shadow of the past chapter with frodo saying like it's a pity bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance and you know gandalf gives frodo a little reprimand and a little lesson on pity and mercy but now frodo's like oh I, I get it now. Yeah, he makes reference to that moment where, um, especially because Sam is immediately more aggressive towards Gollum uh, yeah. and then Smeagol. Um, but Frodo is definitely like, you know, now that I'm experiencing this creature, all I have in my heart is like absolute pity. <laughs> yeah. And he's like not stupid about Gollum. Like, right. He knows he's treacherous. Yeah. He, he knows not to trust him. Yeah. But he knows he trusts um, what Gandalf said that he has a part to play and that we can't just slay him. He hasn't even really truly attacked us. Like we kind of just spring on him. They're kind of like, well, what do we do? We can't let him run off because we know he's a spy for these orcs. Uh, he's got to come with us. And there's actually a really interesting part here where Gollum starts to remember back to his captivity and torture at the hands of Sauron. I love these moments kind of like in the Palantir when we hear from Pippin Sauron's actual words. We never really get to see Sauron in this book, which right. I think is very interesting. But we do get these little moments where we're hearing secondhand about conversations with him. And so there is this moment where Gollum's like his voice changes and it's like he's remembering when Sauron was torturing him. Mm-hmm. And he says like, leave me alone. You hurt me. Oh, my poor hands. Gollum. I, we, I don't want to come back. I can't find it. I'm tired. I can't, I, we can't find it. Gollum, Gollum, no, nowhere. They're always awake, dwarves, men, and elves. Terrible elves with bright eyes. I can't find it. And then he, like, shakes his fist <laughs> up into to the east. He says, we won't, he cried, not for you. I love this sort of glimpse we get at Gollum's torture. Right. And I think in Unfinished Tales, uh, the Hunt for the Ring chapter, they talk about how Sauron realized there was something indomitable in Gollum. And this is kind of tying back to his hobbit nature, that he there's something he can't break him down completely. Right. So he tortured him as much as he could, but then he's like, well, he's going to search for the ring no matter what. So right. if we just let him do that and, and my follow, or- him, yeah. follow him around and he'll report back to my orcs, whatever. But I love his defiance against Sauron. Well, and when you think about it, I, I think of Gollum not necessarily as an evil character, but you know oh not at all dark because of his own self-interest right and i think to some extent the only thing that can defeat the self-interest of sauron and his raging for power over this world is like this extremely lowly creature's own self-interest yeah i mean well again getting back to evil is self-defeating sauron's ring tortured Gollum. right sauron himself tortured Gollum. Uh, to the point where he hated Sauron and would do anything to keep the ring away from him. And so, yeah, he's created his own worst enemy in Gollum. Right, absolutely. And this all ties back in with Gandalf saying he has a part to play. Um, 
And as we know, he's going to be very crucial <laughs> yeah. to the destruction of the ring. Yeah. But essentially, this this conversation goes on, and uh, Frodo and Sam realize they can't have Gollum come with them without binding him in, in some right. way, both physically and, I guess, mentally or spiritually mm-hmm. um, through uh, a swearing in, sort of. Um, yeah. And this is when we, we learn of... Smeagol, which is Gollum's actual identity um, and the sort of small piece of his soul that is yet untarnished. Yeah. And even that small untarnished bit is fully dedicated to the One Ring. Uh, He knows that Frodo has it and Frodo says, you know, it's before you. You Mm -hmm. know, I have the ring. Immediately, Smeagol wants to swear on it, which Frodo stops him and says, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Because, like, this ring is powerful. It's going to warp whatever promise you make to it in a way that suits the ring and its master. We can't have you swear on it, but you can swear to it, to the precious that that you are going to help us out. We know you, if anything, you only serve the precious. So like if you swear to it. Right. So he swears this oath to Frodo. And I just want to take a moment just to talk about oaths in Lord of the Rings are very important. I mean, once you swear, it is a very binding contract. Um, The the whole plot of the Silmarillion, a large part of it revolves around the oath of Feanor and his sons to reclaim their Silmarils from the Dark Lord who stole them. And that they would do they ha- they are compelled to obey it, uh, as we'll see later with the dead men um, in Return of the King. They swore an oath to a sealed door mm-hmm. to fight. They broke it, and now they're cursed. This is another one of these big. And remember, Elrond also said, "I'm not going to make you swear oaths to stay with the fellowship." Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, he saw what the sons of Feanor um, and they all did in the name of their oath. Um, but now here we have Gollum actually swearing another one of these very important oaths that's going to be very crucial. And to be honest, it, it feels almost like, you know, some more Hobbit trickery of a similar like as when Bilbo <laughs> tricks him with the what's in my pocket question. It, it's not that I think that Smeagol is completely fooled by this switch of wording here, but it is... Definitely, I think, smart on the part of Frodo to make this distinction of you're, you're swearing to the precious yeah. rather than on it. Yeah, so then Gollum leads them through this path through the marshes, the dead marshes that he had found a long time ago. Uh, Sauron's armies typically use the roads to the east and the south, but no one really goes through these marshes. So uh, this is where he's actually coming in very handy. As they're passing through these marshes, they notice these, like, lights, these, like, flickering flames that are floating above the water. Right. And Gollum's like, don't look at the lights. <laughs> um, but then they notice that there are, like, dead faces in the water. It's very <laughs> eerie. Yeah. This is, I would say, the scariest thing. Like, as much as the Balrog is kind of this moment of, like, ooh, sort scary of Lovecraftian thing. horror. Yeah. Um, this is, like morbidity and um i mean we talked about this chapter back all the way when we were talking about tom bombadil's house just because this this is another instance where lights are mentioned a lot in the the concept of flame and candlelight yeah and i mean if you buy into the theory of tom bombadil and all the candles being something to do with the flame imperishable or the spirits or feya of beings 
here again he uses the word candle a lot and um i have to believe that these are sort of the spirits of the people that are trapped in the swamp because they say like is this like some art of the dark lord because a little backstory um backing up a little bit this is an old battle plane Mm -hmm. where during the war of the last alliance at the end of the second age when all the elves and men allied to take down sauron um so yeah now there's all these elves men and orc bodies that are stay in the swamp and we know sauron was a necromancer we know that was one of his main powers so it seems like he's sort of commanding these spirits to like not move on and that they're stuck here in this swamp right um and actually during this battle in the war of the last alliance legolas's grandfather fought and died here okay rather than waiting for elendil and gilgalad who were the respective leaders of the armies of men and elves uh his name was and i might butcher this king orifer of mirkwood he rashly uh just charged with his men without waiting for the um the rest of the armies and got himself and his men kind of foolishly killed mm-hmm. and so it stands to reason that legolas's grandfather might be here in the marsh and in right. the movies when they see this person with the long flowing blonde right. hair <laughs> yeah I, my headcanon is always that's orifer's corpse yeah and um, i i think the other interesting thing is this goes back to the necromancy part of it it's not like these are rotting disgusting gooey skeletons in no. the marsh they're like perfectly preserved exactly. pristine corpses mm-hmm. uh freshly dead and this was like three thousand years ago right exactly um, yeah so yeah Very cool. it's it's definitely some sauron black magic at work definitely sam overhears while frodo is sleeping Gollum and smeagol kind of have this debate right back and forth about what to do and they're just like we can't help them get closer to sauron because we can't let him have the ring but like what do we do yeah Gollum and Smeagol clearly have zero faith in the concept of like being able to destroy the ring within Mordor. He feels that once you're in Mordor, the ring is Sauron. Yeah. And well, I don't even know if he knows at this point that they're trying right. to destroy it, right. but they're just like, why would you go back there yeah. with it? Um, and he's like saying like, well, we, we swore to the master of the precious. If we were the master of the precious, we could help ourselves. Um, so he's kind of trying to twist his way around this oath a little bit. And then he mentions, um, he's always says he with a capital H to describe Sauron, but then he says she, she could help us. And so we still don't know who she is. No, we haven't Um, reached that point. The part that always surprises me about this part is the fact that Sam doesn't tell Frodo. (laughs) Yeah, it seems pretty important information, especially given how much Sam detests yeah smeagol like i've just i've always thought it was a little weird for him to overhear this entire conversation and not say to fredo hey i think he's planning to betray us yeah and it seems like simply he doesn't tell because he doesn't know who she is you know like it, it of course i would i would think that if it was clear who she is or, or what Gollum had planned yeah. he would tell frodo yeah. but it seems clear enough to me that he's being treacherous. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, maybe Sam just assumes Frodo assumes that. Yeah. Um. So it's like, why bother him with this? Um, but no, I I agree with you. It is kind of strange. Frodo is so, in some ways, protective of Smeagol in a way that Sam's like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. And it would almost seem like sharing this information with Frodo might like make it make more sense that 
Sam is so not into him. Yeah. Keeping in mind, too, uh, Frodo saw the change that came over Bilbo at Rivendell. He saw him become very Gollum-like, and he knows that that's a possibility for him as well. Right. So when he sees Gollum, he sees what Bilbo could have became or what he could become. Yeah. And so that is definitely, I think, the source of a lot of his pity. Then they move right along to uh, the next chapter, The Black Gate is Closed, where they finally come to the front door of Mordor. Yeah, um, <laughs> they made it. All this time they've been talking, we got to get to Mordor, we got to get to Mordor. Now they're there, how do we get in? Well, I guess the front door? <laughs> um, they really haven't thought this far ahead. And they seem to know nothing of the landscape either than what Smeagol is able to explain to them. Um, you know, they they left in quite a hurry. And even when they left the rest of the fellowship, it's not like they had Gandalf, who was their leader and, and definitely knew more about Mordor than anyone else. Right. And it's at this time that Smeagol really makes a play to, to start his own plan and well, yeah, because he kind of has to, because they roll yeah. up there and the, the gate is guarded ceaselessly. Like, yeah. it is, there are eyes there that don't sleep. Um, and there are armies march, and Sauron is gathering all of his armies, so there's armies marching in as they right. speak. And so there's really nothing for them to, if they, like, revealed themselves, they would just be taken right to Sauron. Yeah, and um, essentially Frodo's like, well, we have to go in. We've got to make it in there. And Smeagol's like, if you go in that way, then, like, absolutely everything is lost. Like, you know, and it's interesting to me, you know, Smeagol is clearly only in it for himself, but he understands how evil Sauron is. And it feels like it goes beyond just his own personal vendetta over his his torturing like i I think Mm -hmm. he knows the depth of desolation that exists within mordor and and understands that if that guy is empowered any more than he already is that's like bad for me and bad for everything yeah and i mean well one thing i think about is in the passage of the marshes um sam remarks like what a lonely place like not even a bird and Gollum, who we know eats fish and birds, he's just like, no, no birds. Um, like, yeah, yeah, it's like there's nothing even left for Gollum in the world yeah. ruled by Sauron. Um, right. So he's, yeah, not I, keen to see him rule Middle Earth. And it's interesting. I, I think that's something I, I never really picked up on watching the movies. And and I'm not sure exactly why that is, but I, I think the the book goes a long way to not humanize Gollum, but but make it clear that he is just as much against Sauron as everyone else is. Oh, yeah. I mean... And that doesn't seem as clear in the movies, yeah. you know, when you as watch As much, this if not more so. Capering, um, evil, gremlin guy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, naturally, he would ally with Sauron. Right, But it's just yeah. like, he probably hates Sauron more than anyone. Everyone else has this very, uh, you know, a relationship to Sauron and his evil through tangents, but Gollum has and- a relationship very physical very in your face yeah everything so far has been very theoretical (laughs) yeah and speaking of i do want to point out Gollum says something very interesting in this chapter that kind of gives us another little insight into sauron at one point he mentions he says oh yes he only has four fingers on his black hand but they are enough yeah yeah um which tells me a couple things in the council of elrond when they were reading isildur's account of taking the ring they talk about how Gilgalad died when he died fighting and killing Sauron's physical form. 
He says he was like grabbed or grappled by Sauron and burned and so died. Mm-hmm. And so we know that Sauron has this sort of uh, fiery hands, fiery touch. <laughs> yeah. uh, also in Unfinished Tales, we know Keller Brimbor, who forged the Rings of Power. When he was found out that Sauron betrayed him and made the One Ring, it says that he withstood Sauron himself on the steps of his temple, but he was grappled. Mm. Um, and then we know Gollum. He was like, oh, my poor hands. And... Gandalf said that when he captured Gollum, he had to put the threat of fire in him to get anything out of him. Mm. So I think we can kind of infer here that Gollum was burned by Sauron's hands. I think even burning Gollum's hand, like he grabbed him by his Mm. hands and burned him. At least that's always been my inference through putting together these little bits I mean, hands are just a big theme with Sauron in general. When yeah. when we're up on top of the mountain, it's a hand that reaches towards Frodo, who's currently wearing the ring. Um, the ring is something you wear on a hand. Exactly. I mean, even, uh, I think going back to the Barrowites, we never see a Barrowite, but we see an arm with a hand crawling. Right. We know the Barrowites were brought to life. I use that loosely. <laughs> um, by the Witch King. The Witch King <laughs> is a servant of Sauron. And so, again, this is like this hand imagery reaching out for the ring for Frodo. Yeah, it just makes me think of manipulation, right? Like, in a non-loaded way. Manipulation literally means, like, using the hands to, to do something. Yeah. Um, or to make something. And Mosaran's also a craftsman. Yes, He's exactly. He's a, a blacksmith. It, yeah. He works with his hands. So it makes sense that his hands have this uh, power of fire. Yeah, hands and fire. They're huge parts of, of power in this uh, exactly. world. Another thing this tells us is that Sauron has a physical form. Mm -hmm. He has actual hands. Uh, We don't get much descriptions of him. In one of his letters, he describes Sauron as being man-shaped but taller. And then we know he has nine fingers. Right. um, Because the seal door chopped one off. But I think it's very interesting because Sauron lost his body when a seal door chopped it off. His his physical form was already defeated by Elendil and Gilgalad. It was already mortally essentially destroyed but his soul still lingered until a sealed door cut the ring right and then it fled but we know he rebuilt his body i think it's very interesting that he couldn't rebuild that finger mm, um earlier yeah. sauron had lost his body in the fall of numenor and what happened then was he lost his ability to take a fair form so i think that's something that's important to keep in mind with the maiar and even the valar is that their power is finite absolutely and once they put their power out into something they can't get it back it's very you know it's very clear that jk rowling got a lot of basis for horcruxes from i think so the ring and um yeah i mean it makes sense you know he's he's put all of his power essentially into the one ring or most a good chunk a good of it. chunk of it um and and he'll always live as long as the ring is not destroyed right he'll exactly. always come back but again he only has a limited amount to work with sure now. that was the whole idea behind voldemort using yeah. his horcruxes is that if i leave enough little scattered tiny pieces of my soul i'll always be able to live right his power is only growing in the state of middle earth right now so i i just have always found it interesting that he can't put together that last finger yeah and so he's left with nine fingers there's a couple times when they mention that he's regathered the nine rings of the nazgul to himself and he has nine fingers and like what you were talking about the metaphor of his hands right. reaching out it's almost like when the nine are abroad they are themselves like each a finger of sauron because we know they have no will of their own left sure. anymore they are only exist as extensions of sauron yeah. himself especially the witch king so I, I always like that there are nine 
ring wraiths and uh sauron the lord of the rings only has nine fingers and he also shares that well by the end of the story he will share that with another character yeah um which i've always found that very interesting that <laughs> we'll have to talk about that yeah. when it comes i know i'm getting um, a little ahead of myself but i have to think you know headcanon and granted lord of the rings has one of the softest magic you know systems of all time it it, it is mythic magic it is uh fairy tale magic it does not follow many rules at all but science is quite out if we know anything this is what i would like to think completely my headcanon is that if he did get that one ring back so would he get back his last finger Probably, yeah. Because, like we said, he his power is finite. Most of it is bound up in the ring. So what he has left is, you know, he's sitting up in his tower right, right. now. Uh, if he gets that back, then he's pretty much back to his initial strength at the beginning of the Second Age. Right. Which is, uh, would be really bad for <laughs> Middle Earth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think he would easily be able to rebuild a, a new finger with, yeah. if he got that back. Oh yeah, I mean, he's In addition to many other evil things. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and then Gollum mentions that there is another way into Mordor. <laughs> yep, there's a back way into Mordor. Yeah, Gollum mentions these stairs that they can go up, and he's really kind of dancing around the fact, is it guarded or not? It seems awfully convenient for his plan. <laughs> and pretty um, suspicious given his conversation with himself that was overheard by Sam. But again, I don't really know any other way they could go. I no, mean, there's I mean, the front door, which is obviously not an option, and then like... This way that might be secret, might yeah. be known, but, you know, it's better than this. It's it's interesting to me at this point, you know, Gollum insists that he found this way. He was the one who found the way out. And uh, they're kind of like, but you were released by Sauron. Like, Sauron wanted you to leave yeah. Mordor. Like, isn't this just another trap of yours? And he's like, no, I found it. I escaped. Uh, which is interesting. I, I don't think he's lying in that instance. Necessarily. Or I think he at least thinks. That. Yeah, he thinks. Um, that. And well, I always, I love the I love how they say that whenever he says I is probably when he's being the most truthful. Right. Because yeah. otherwise he's created this kind of golem persona to distance <laughs> right. himself from all the evil things he's done. Stinker and slinker. As <laughs> Sam, Sam puts calls it. him. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's always great whenever he uses I that I think more than anything humanizes him. Yeah. Because he's always calling himself Precious or Smeagol or Gollum. And to just talk like a normal person, yeah. is, uh, it's pretty profound for him. Yeah, there's actually a lot of variation in Gollum slash Smeagol's speech through this whole section of chapters. Um, where sometimes he is reduced to this like blubbering, pleading animal yeah. appealing to like Frodo's goodness. Um, and like can barely like get a word out. He's just like sobbing. Um, and, and saying things like good master, good master, good hobbit, you know, all the way to like actual real speech that he probably used when he was a hobbit. Um, and then in the middle ground where he's speaking in plural or like the plural self and he's just talking to the precious and not to anyone mm -hmm. else. Um, I talked at length, I think, during our Hobbit section about how much I love Gollum and, and I just think he's such a unique character and we really get to see a lot of stuff through this one character. Um, oh, yeah. And he's like, in my opinion, a, a really fabulous analogy to an addict. And it's also a really interesting, you know, character to view mental health through. And Oh, yeah, um, I, I do think he's probably one of Tolkien's best characters. Yeah, just like period. really flesh out. And it, it's it's wild given that, 
he wants one thing the whole time. Yeah, his, it's a very his, simple his, character. He's a very but... simple character, but his actual characterization is extremely And complex. his conflict over it, his because as the story goes through, he doesn't just love the precious, he grows to love Frodo. Yeah, he um, does. And because he's like the first person to really ever be kind to him and show him. It's so sad. It literally is oh, yeah. it, like knowing what eventually happens to him. Yeah. I am just like gutted by some of the scenes between him and Frodo. No. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's deep stuff, man. <laughs> they decide to go this third way on the path and have to leave, <laughs> leave their destination. And start again on a treacherous path yeah now they start to wind their way westward around the mountains of mortar to go south and uh that leads us to of herbs and stewed rabbit (laughs) um very cute samwise heavy chapter well this was sort of in the last chapter but sam as much as he kind of has this silly level of lack of self-preservation when it comes to Frodo and protecting his master. That's about the only area that he's kind of dunce-like with. Everything else, he's like extremely curious. He has an illimitable memory and imagination for folktales and legends that he's acquired throughout the years. Um, He's Hopeful to see an oliphant, which is, of course, like very similar to an elephant. he's heard stories about them Um, in the Shire. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that even Gollum doesn't know. And Gollum's like kind of been all over. Like Gollum's a a wanderer. He he does know a lot. I just think it's it's very interesting that, for instance, like the, is it the Ralph Bakshi cartoon? paint sam which i love by the way yeah it's really good but but sam's depiction is sam's depiction is very questionable (laughs) and um it it really does not relate to the kind of character we see in the book um i think the peter jackson movies do a lot better of a job um but he's still kind of presented as like just like this emotional and and simple guy and not like a willing adventurer who is ready to see all of the things that he's heard in his stories yeah yeah and well i love that you're bringing up like how um like clever and smart he is um one part i always like is when they're leaving lothlorien and i think they mentioned it before they really get into it they're like yeah sam looked up at the sky and like puckered his brow it's like he's thinking about something and like later he brings up he's like i can't figure out like why the phase of the moon is where it is because I feel like we were only in there not that long, and now it seems like a whole month. And Aragorn's like, yeah, time went by a lot. Like, But it's only Sam is the only one that notices this. Right. He's looking at the phases of the moon to tell like how long they were in Lothlorien. Um, and I, I mean, Frodo's... He's really clever. Yeah, Frodo's wise, and, and Sam definitely thinks Frodo's wise, and uh, it's true. But it, it seems like, to me, Frodo's much more wrapped up in his internal world and his oh, quandary yeah. of being the ring bearer and... Yeah. Uh, how to kind of lead this little expedition. Uh, whereas Sam is very grounded. He's constantly looking out. He's, He's very constantly, practical. His head is on a swivel, plugged yeah. in to reality. And well, I mean, even going back to uh, the first book of Fellowship of the Ring, there's this part where they're like, oh, Strider, can you tell us more about Gilgalad? And they're like, someone started singing and it was Sam. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, wow, there's more to you than meets the eye, Sam. Oh, yeah. Um, he has definitely like retained every bit of information that he's ever received. 
he's the opposite of Mary yeah. um, and Pippin, you yeah. know, and Pippin's like, oh, I wish I'd listened more in Lothlorien. Like, that's the kind of stuff that Sam doesn't ever forget. No, yeah, he was definitely listening. Yeah. And um, yeah, another thing we get a lot of Sam in this chapter is his dynamic with Gollum and Smeagol. And we've seen a little bit about that before. He's really harsh. Yeah. Um, and demanding. Yeah. He and... expects Gollum to, like, work for him. I think there's a letter where... Tolkien's responding to someone about, you know, his characters and their flaws and how sometimes it seems like there's not his characters are very it's good versus evil and everyone that's good is so good. And, you know, Aragorn, though, he has his like self-doubt and um, even Frodo has had to go on a little bit of a journey. You know, he did have kind of a simple minded view of people outside the Shire. Yeah. And Gollum. And now we've seen that kind of grow. He talks about how Sam's big flaw is he's kind of conceited over his love of Frodo. Yeah. Um, And one thing I don't think the movies play up as much is that there's this class difference. He is his servant. Frodo is his master. Well, now who else is Frodo's servant? Right. Gollum. Yeah. So now he has to compete with Gollum for their master. No, Um, exactly. And and that's something that he's never had to experience before. There's definitely the impression that Frodo has never had another servant or gardener or you know manservant other than sam and sam has been loyal and he's been rewarded well with frodo's love for that and friendship and it's definitely clear that he sees this potential for another you know keening complimentary servant to potentially take his place or or confuse his and it's like some of his concern over Gollum is, I think, very warranted. Yeah. And he is just looking out for Frodo. However, a lot of it, I think, is born out of jealousy. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is what I would say is, you know, Sam is loyal to a fault. This yeah. is his big flaw is he gets so jealous over Gollum that he won't really give him a chance. Yeah. He's trying to compete with him for Frodo's affection. And it definitely worsens Gollum's outlook on yes. them as two hobbits. Um, and this will be very important going into the next section. Sam almost completely fucks the whole situation up by how he treats Gollum. But here we do see him trying to kind of like make some kind of a relationship (laughs) with him. Like, hey, let's like, will you help me get some food for Frodo? and go get some more herbs. Thanks for these rabbits. And, you know, know? he's like, he's trying. Yeah. uh, At least just for Frodo's um, sake. Smeagol's so funny in this section. I I just think it's really cute. I mean, I love the moments where this giant epic book slows down enough that we get like a real comical interaction between yeah. characters and i mean and on the borders of mordor no yeah. less. like it's I know, like very hobbit <laughs> yeah um and i just i love that you know sam receives the rabbits from Gollum kind of graciously and is like oh i'm gonna make a stew like awesome and then when Gollum realizes that oh my god what the fuck are you doing you're cooking he's like i never meat? would have brought you these if this i knew you disgusting were. i would have eaten them for myself like how could you and Sam is like, come on. I mean, like, we all eat things our own way. Like, and he entreats him to go find herbs for this stew that he's going to make. Um, and Gollum just, like, looks at him from the ferns. He's, like, buried in the ferns yeah, and just yeah. glaring at him and just mad. And it, it reminds, I mean, we refer to one of our cats, like, reminds us of Gollum a lot. So yeah. I think this part really reminds me of our cats. <laughs> That's really funny. A lot of this chapter is this just kind of uh, character play between Sam and Gollum and this sort of comical little bit about the rabbits takes up most of the book. Yeah. 
or m- most of the chapter. But this is all kind of a setup to Sam kind of leaving the fire untended, and we meet these um, men, the Dunedain of Gondor. Yeah, a bunch of men of dressed in green, a bunch of soldiers. Like Robin Hood and his yeah. merry band. And we meet their captain, Faramir. Um, I fucking love Faramir. Like, just 10 out of 10 better version of Boromir. I hate to say <laughs> no, it. No, I mean, that's like, kind of how he, he exists as a foil to Boromir. And I mean, he's so much better that he knows so much about Boromir. Anyway, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically where this chapter ends. Well, I guess they do. Uh, they ambush the... Um, Southern army coming up from right. The we south. get to see a little action. The Oliphant crashes through the trees. Sam gets to see uh, an Oliphant, and but then that leads us into the window of the west, which is where we started with Sam finding Faramir and his men seeming to interrogate Frodo. Yeah, you know, like every introduction of someone who ends up being like a big hero of the story. Yeah, we are presented with like really sketchy beginnings yeah or a very morally gray area yeah we're not Um, sure you know what faramir is wanting and there's a high risk since he's a man of gondor there's this high risk and he immediately brings up boromir this chapter reminds me a lot of uh the strider chapter when they first meet strider and it's like who is this guy we don't know if we can trust you and it's Like like both people are talking kind of in riddles like they're not being super upfront, and it's happening they're trying to get sides. frodo to like admit something yeah almost. And, yeah um, exactly well aragorn um, was kind of testing to see like hopefully they don't give away too much hopefully right. these are good caretakers right. they won't of the tell ring. anything and faramir lit- literally just wants to know he wants to know what happened to his what brother. happened to his brother and there's a little bit of indication that they suspect oh like what if this guy killed boromir and and left you know mm-hmm. um but the truth all comes out and it's very interesting to me that um, Faramir, without much prompting, understands that Boromir, and this is before he even knows that Frodo has the ring. He just knows yeah. he's carrying an item of portents, you know? Yeah, and he knows that Boromir didn't survive right. this journey. Exactly. And there's, a, you know, he asks, like, did you leave on good terms? And Yeah, he can kind of suss out that there was a... Frodo and Boromir did not leave on good terms. Right, exactly. Um, And, I mean, he he kind of immediately makes the realization that, like, I know my brother. He was a proud man. And I'm sure that whatever you have is something he wanted. (laughs) Yeah, I I love this. I love how honest Faramir is able to be about someone that he, you know, you can tell he loves Boromir. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But he is, like, not going to, you know, try to make him out to be someone that he wasn't. He's like, yeah, I could see my brother, you know, falling and trying to take something of great power if he thought it could help Gondor. Um, And, I mean, it's even realized in this section that Faramir was originally supposed to attend the Council of Elrond. He he was the one who was supposed to go to Rivendell. Right. As Boromir said then, he said that um, the night before the Witch King attacked Osgiliath, a dream had came to his brother. Um, and it, then later it came to him, right. but it first came to Faramir and then it said it often came to Faramir. So Faramir was receiving this dream, like with those words, like seek for Embladris, seek for the sword that was broken. When the halfling comes forth, a sealed door's bane will come. I, yeah. yeah, I'm probably butchering all that, <laughs> but, um, 
I think Faramir would have been a better person Absolutely. to go. Absolutely. Imagine how much smoother the Fellowship would have gone. However, however, the breaking of the Fellowship was pretty necessary. Right. Um, Absolutely. So was it, was it fate that um, Boromir went instead of Faramir? Well, and even... now they have Faramir. And yeah, exactly. Now he's where he needs to be to help them on their yeah. journey. So, I mean, again, it's part of this big cosmic web that's right. being weaved. Um uh, about our heroes, but I, I've always found it interesting. All these sort of like Woven. what? It... Okay. <laughs> um. But yeah, so I just like to think sometimes about like what if this happened and right. what if this, and I think there's all these moments that we can do that with. Um. I mean, it is definitely you know, uh, say say Faramir was the one who was the member of the Fellowship instead of Boromir, then it would probably be Boromir that they would be running into at this point, which would be much, much worse. Yeah, because it wouldn't just be Boromir alone. It would be Boromir with a squadron of men at his command. Absolutely. And a lot of righteousness hot on the killing of some uh, southern armies. That's true. I never thought about, like, I've always thought about Faramir going, but I've never thought about what if it was Boromir that they ran into an Athelian instead of Faramir? And that is, yeah, that it would be bad. It would have been very disastrous. Especially because if, if you consider that if Faramir were part of it and they never really dissolved the, the fellowship in the same kind of tragic way, he would have just gone to Menas Tirith with Aragorn. Maybe a few others would have accompanied Frodo and Sam on this, but they still would have run into this army inevitably. Faramir takes them to Hineth Anun, their secret lair mm -hmm. underneath this waterfall. And they kind of continue their conversations. Um, but it's a lot less tense now. Oh, it's a lot oh, more yeah, heart yeah. to heart at this point. Um, Faramir still doesn't know that Isildur's Bane is the One Ring. Right. But they go there and Faramir essentially gives them this uh, big history lesson <laughs> and talks a lot about the men of Numenor and their descendants now, mm -hmm. the people of Gondor. And I love this part because he's kind of contrasting the men of Rohan to the people of Numenor. And he says they classify men in Gondor into three classes. The high, the middle, and the wild. The high are obviously the descendants of the Numenorians, the Gondorians. The middle is the people of Rohan. They've lived in Middle-earth and they've been kind of ennobled by their relationship to the people of Gondor. And then you have the wild men who serve Sauron um, and you know they live in darkness um, but I like how he says that over the years Gondor has waned and they're not nearly where they used to be and that's kind of what Faramir wants is like he serves this ideal of Numenor um, but he's like but my country Gondor is not what it used to be and he kind of uses Boromir as a example of how it's fallen you know, they used to celebrate arts and lore, and now they kind of just celebrate warfare. Something else we learn about Boromir is that he always wished to be a prince. He wished that their father was king. He couldn't understand why it took so many years without a king for the steward to then become king. And um, it's all wrapped up yeah. in this kind of shift of, of Gondor. Yeah, yeah. And well, I also love Denethor's answer. He was like, in other realms much less years but in gondor like thousands of years would not be enough which i think tells us a lot about denethor and his respect right. for the numenorean tradition but yeah and we also know boromir had this close relationship with the men of rohan and yeah. these are people that faramir says is like yeah they like we love them they're great valiant people but they do just kind of like delight in war as a thing good in itself 
And that's kind of like where Gondor is headed. We may have ennobled them, but, you know, over the years, we've become more like them. I like that Boromir is maybe much more like a man of Rohan than of Gondor. And as we know, he was beloved in Rohan. Mm -hmm. He had a good relationship with Theoden. Uh, Theoden kind of mourns him when he finds Mm -hmm. out about his passing. I, I, it's always been my headcanon. Aemir's grown up hearing these stories of the captain of Gondor. Sure. <laughs> um, and at the Council of Elrond, Boromir defends the men of Rohan. He's like, no, this thing that they sell horses to Sauron, that has to be a lie. Yeah. Um, He's like, there's no way that yeah. they are a part of this. So I love this idea of Boromir and Faramir as Boromir kind of represents the fallen state of Gondor to become much more like the middlemen of He's Rohan. He's like the fire, the passion exactly you know and and um faramir represents the ideal of what they used to be and what he wants them to become again and i mean i gotta say he's pretty ideal he is such a thinker he's almost got an aragorn level of sensing and predicting and and taking an inference from something someone says and and creating a whole story from it and it being pretty close to he's just got that wisdom yeah he's um, so wise um, and very, very cool. I am definitely a big fan. Yeah, and I mean, well, I think we need to mention somewhere here that of all, you know, everyone's always asked if um, Tolkien has inserted himself into the story as Gandalf, as Bilbo, as Tom Bombadil. And he said, like, actually, the character that I kind of most based off of myself was Faramir. And as we know, Tolkien was a soldier during World War One. Right. He hated war. He hated war, but he was a warrior who fought. Um, Faramir's uh, line that he says about, you know, I love not the sword for its sharpness, but, and he says a few other things, but like, I I love only that which they defend. Right. And I think that is totally, you know, Tolkien obviously loves the history and the culture of England. Right. And uh, Britain. And he was creating all of this to have a kind of mythology for England. I think he definitely wants to see a world in which, you know, the arts, the culture, the stories uh, of England are celebrated, but he was very unhappy with the imperialistic nature sure. of England. Yeah. And also, you know, their just role in warfare. And during World War One, he was just like, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll defend my <laughs> country if I have to, but I, I will not delight in war at all. Right. And this goes hand in hand with his anti-industrialism. Definitely. But... I, I don't know. I I know you love Faramir. I, I mean, I do too. I think he's a great character. I've always found him to be a little too perfect. I mean, he is a, he's, he's a little too much like... And here's my thing. I don't have a problem with a too perfect character. Unfortunately, we already have a too perfect character, and his name is Aragorn, and he's yeah. the king. But <laughs> so, like, my thing is, though, Aragorn, I think I at least see a lot of self-doubt that plagues him in a way I don't really see... I don't know. To me, Faramir is even lacking that. And it's like... What flaws does he have? I just think, you know, <laughs> he's he's an idea. He's a character that exists to be an ideal. Maybe here's the thing: if if he had shown up, you know, in Rivendell with everyone else, maybe I would find him insufferable. But after like chapters of just like Smeagol yeah. <laughs> and the Hobbits Definitely. fighting and like you know this kind of treacherous pathway to find this like to find this like wise young extremely insightful man who turns out to be Boromir's brother literally the reason the whole fellowship fell apart the way it did it's so I I think it's like healing in a way especially to Frodo who 
has like a lot of guilt over finding out that Boromir is dead. And, and yeah, you know, even before like they find out that he's dead, there's some guilt there about how just things leaving were everybody just, behind, just and... awkward, you know, and, yeah. and the whole situation over the ring was very uncomfy. So I, I think that's a very healing thing to, to find another man of Gondor who is super close to Boromir, of course, mourns his death, but sees things very clearly. Yeah. And is not as driven as his brother in, in the darker ways. Mm-hmm. It's definitely refreshing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think my sticking point is just that he makes the, the most perfect character his self-insert into the story. Oh. Um, it's a, like, <laughs> this is the character most based off of me. Okay, yeah, he's the most perfect guy. Well, doesn't everyone do that? I feel like uh, I, I feel guess. like when I've written characters, the one that I'm like, that's me, is like the one who's pretty like blameless with it yeah yeah. like he's pretty on it so i mean that's just i think that i mean tolkien obviously has stuff to say so it's like Like, it makes sense that uh, the character that is what he's trying to communicate of like this is my ideal yeah and i think comes from his own mind like think about this whole series up till this point you know from the beginning of the fellowship of the ring to this point so much has been like built on not knowing right all of these missed connections with Gandalf, all of these moments of like, I guess we're going to continue on. We don't really have a plan. And then suddenly they run into this guy who's just like, I know everything. And like, but not in a, not in a Galadriel way. Just like, I am a man and I get it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Like it's pretty, I find it very encouraging given that the only human we've really interacted with is Boromir. And he's supposedly the best of men, and he fell so right. hard for the ring that I personally think that this character, whether it's his self-insert or yeah. not, is just such a like breath of fresh air. Yeah, well, and I just I personally love all the um, comparing and contrasting between Boromir and Faramir. I think that's just in itself a fun literary exercise. Yeah, you can probably find just tons of little things and i think it's very interesting that gondor was founded by two brothers Mm, and so now we have these two brothers who's like their role in the war of the ring has a lot to do with gondor's fate that brings us to our last chapter the forbidden pool and honestly uh not a lot happened in this one it was kind of short yeah Um, it's very short Uh, i just wanted to wrap up all the (laughs) faramir stuff into one uh episode but uh yeah so they've been separated from Gollum. You know, when they're taken in. Um, Which is kind of sad. It's really sad. And they, like, don't mention him either. They're like, uh, we were alone. I don't know what else you saw out there. Um, they're like, yeah, there's some guy, maybe, a creature out there. Um, I don't know. I feel really bad for Gollum in this section. You know, of course, he's having a good time catching fish in this pool. That but he of course... feels very abandoned. Yes, he does. Absolutely. I mean, he's been traveling with these guys and... Um, of they're, course, like, they're like, we need your help. And then they, they just leave him. Yeah. I, he has no lack of love for Frodo and his feelings for Sam are pretty mixed. Um, but they were his teammates and yeah. he got them rabbits and stuff. And I mean, it's like the first gone. people that have been like on his side, yeah. like not trying to kill him. It's been Gollum against the world yeah. for hundreds of years. And now suddenly he's got 
people that he's helping. Yeah. He's not used to being in the position of helping others. No. So, yeah, he's pretty bummed. Um, and he's been seen. There's this dark figure looking at them, you know, and they're like, see who's a big that squirrel? guy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is another way he reminds me of our cat. But, like, he... Uh, is in this forbidden pool that's like very sacred and no one other than like the people of Gondor are allowed to. Well, yeah, because he's right below their secret lair. And yeah. they're just like, well, we can't just let him go. He's found his way here. Right. What if he reports back to someone and he's else? Like, they're like, what is he doing? And Frodo's kind of like, I think he's, he's fishing. He's just fishing. He just wants fish and like, let me go talk to him. Um, and he lures, you know, Gollum out and then of course he's he's captured which is a, an immense betrayal yeah Frodo feels so really bad about it even though he's saving his life yeah it is it is the absolutely necessary thing to happen but this totally reminds me of when our cat is running around outside and we need to call her in and we shake the dry food which we never let her have and she comes in and we give her a bite of dry food and then we put it away because it's like junk food for her and she gets That's upset so um yeah <laughs> Uh, Sorry, Smeagol. I know. I feel so bad. But then they bring Smeagol before them, and uh, Faramir is asking them about, like, what you know, what are you planning to do with them? And he tells them about the pass that they're going to go up, and he knows the name. Faramir's like, oh, the pass of Kirithungal? <laughs> right. Which, um, you know, they don't go that way. So they don't know about it. But they say, like, if you ask, like, older people in Gondor, back when they used to live in Athelion, uh, they would fall silent. Like, they know there's something There's in the something dark there. there. People don't come back from going right. into up that way. I'd like to break down, like, Kirith Ungol, uh, especially Ungol. That sounds to me a lot like Ungoliant. Mm. Um, mm. The ancient evil spider oh. entity. Interesting. Ah. And we know that she had a lot of spawn. Uh, so I wonder if that has something to do with the evil that lurks up there. So yeah, they're about to leave. and um, But on this very foreboding note that uh, Faramir is just like, I know you have to continue your journey, but, and I know you literally have no other way, but I don't like the sound of that. And yeah, like watch out. Keep an eye on that golem. Yeah. <laughs> so... Next week, we will be talking about the second half of book four, ending the two towers. Yeah. So that is chapter seven, Journey to the Crossroads, through chapter 10, The Choices of Master Samwise. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at HalfAsWellPod. You can also find us at HalfAsWellPodcast.com, where... <laughs> what <laughs> don't don't laugh okay you can definitely find our reading schedule there blogs forthcoming as always one day one day sometime when i get the time um hey man it's a hard life between gardening and reading tolkien <laughs> all the time okay i'm sage and i'm william and this is half, half as, as well, well.